0: Guitar is safe. Well, hey, here we are, episode 10, No Guitar is Safe, cruising right along, and today we have a great guest for you. Today, on the show, we have the great
1: mm-hmm.
0: Guthrie Govan. That's right, folks, Govan. I'm on a campaign to get people to pronounce his name correctly, but forget all his other pronunciation. I mean, we're talking about one of the most exciting guitar players of the new generation. He plays in the Aristocrats, and that song you're hearing is from the Aristocrats' new album, Trace Caballeros. A great album. And as we cruise along here in the intro, I'm gonna play you some more tracks. Of course, you got Brian Beller there on the bass and Marco Miniman on the drums, the other two aristocrats, the other two caballeros. But I'm pondering the same thing that everyone ponders about Guthrie Govan. How did he get so good and how did he get so proficient at so many different styles? I've thought about this and I sure don't know the answer, but I've noticed one thing that's a little different about Guthrie than many other people. You know, I've hung out with him a few times now, interviewed him, ran into him on the street in LA, at the cafe. I booked clinics with him at musicians institutes. And I noticed this little thing where sometimes I'll ask him a question or make a statement, and instead of replying in words, he just replies with his eyes, because maybe it's a statement that is obvious, like nice day out, or maybe even stupid, or maybe the answer just doesn't need to be spoken. But the way I take it, not making too much of this, but the way I take it is that unlike many human beings, Guthrie really listens. Extremely perceptive. It's got to have a role in how he became so versatile and so tasty and so adept at so many different approaches. The Eternal Student, Guthrie Govan. Now, Today, we're gonna head down to San Diego where we're gonna catch up with Guthrie. It's after soundcheck, it's before their show. Guthrie is fitting us in, which I really appreciate, and I know you do too. It's One of the very last shows of their late summer ending of their tour, which they've been all over the place. We really love it that Guthrie came over to hang out. I went down to their hotel. The place was cool. Gave me a room for two hours so we could jam and rock out with the man. Now, if you want an in-depth look at Guthrie's early years and, you know, childhood and teaching and paying his dues on the way up, etc., I have talked to him about that stuff a couple times. including in the cover story I wrote on him a few years ago in Guitar Player Magazine. Don't worry, if you don't have that, go to the Facebook page, No Guitar Is Safe Facebook page, where you'll find a link to the Guthrie Govan cover story. Today, we're really focusing on the new Aristocrats record, which is amazing. And then just his approach to different techniques, the stuff he plays. Wow. I love it. First time I met Guthrie was uh, outside the NAM show. Paul Cornford and him were hanging out. Paul Cornford of Cornford Amps fame. So I brought a little Harlequin combo. It's a low wattage, 20 watt tube combo. It's got like three knobs on it. Guthrie walks in, turns it on, plugs in. I don't even think he adjusted one knob. All the uh, range of tones you're gonna hear today are all from his Charvel, his custom Charvel signature model. So when you hear that raging distortion, that's probably because the volume is up and the humbuckers engage or when you hear a clean, funky stuff, maybe it's different pickups and he's got the volume halfway down. Very dynamic player. Guthrie, of course, is also going to tell you about some of the other things he's doing. You know, he stays quite busy. He's been doing work with Stephen Wilson, the great prog mastermind and frontman, Porcupine Tree fame, now gone solo. And Guthrie's also been working with one of the world's most famous movie composers. That is to say, he did a big concert with him, and we'll see what happens next. Hopefully something. Hopefully we can hear Guthrie on the next Avengers movie or something. That's what I'm hoping. like Guthrie. He's the anti-hero, the anti-rock star. He just likes to study the guitar and other things and see what happens. He's eternally curious and pays attention. And it's amazing to see how much the new generation of guitarists loves Guthrie Govan. I don't think it's purely because of his chops and his prowess. And all that stuff, I think it's also because they recognize something pure in there. They recognize that pure light, that pure interest in music. So without further ado, let's head over to San Diego. To have you in the building here, Mr. Govin. Oh, thank you for having and, me. And I brought Cornford uh, Amp because, you know, I think the first time I met you was with Paul Cornford at the NAM show. That was seven, eight, nine years ago. Maybe. You were, yeah. yeah. That's back when you used to go to NAM shows before you used to get completely mobbed. I'm sure maybe you still go.
2: I still go when I have to. And it's a kind of mixed bag. I'm really grateful that people seem more aware of what I do now. And obviously, there are worse problems to have in life. But I remember when NAM was kind of like a, a candy store and I could just wander around and be fascinated by everyone's different products and get to meet different companies. And now I'm just smiling at iPhones. If there's anything at Nam that I need to look at, the best thing is just to invite someone to bring it to the motel room or something like that. So Nam has changed over the years.
0: It's definitely changed for you, my friend. Pretty soon it's going to be like Eddie Van Halen. I think there's a story of him getting followed into like a bathroom stall at the Nam show. That That's doesn't sound going. at all unusual to me. Yeah, so it's kind of, you know, it gets crazy there, especially on a Saturday. Saturday's the crazy day, right? Yeah. That's the public day. It's as uh, close to SeaWorld as it gets, isn't it? <laughs> now, you used to use these, this little Cornford harlequin combo a bunch, didn't you? Or yeah, I still have one, in yeah. fact. Yeah. It's a great-sounding amp. Yeah, and now you're using Victory amps, which sound amazing on the new record. Yeah. Well, same designer, so there's some thread of continuity oh, really? there. So you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm very familiar with him from from the Trace Caballeros record that you did, but I don't really know the whole story behind Victory. Why don't you tell us a little bit?
2: Uh, it's basically like the guy in the lab coat from back in the Cornford days, a guy called Martin Kidd, who's a very capable amp designer, as as we both know. And there's this something in the way he hears an amp in his head. There's something about it that connects with me. It's like I understand what you're going for here something that sounds a bit British and a bit vintage, but goes up to 11. Great. And I mean, the Victories don't necessarily sound that much like the Cornfords. They're kind of different end products, but you can hear that the same mind concocted both of those basic amp designs.
0: I mean, if you could use any amp you want on the planet, provided it's still in production or it didn't get lost on Noah's Ark or something... (laughs) Why? What is it about this tone, this Mister Kidd's tone, that you seem to really dig? Whether it's Cornford or Victory? I
2: just think that the, the the amps we hear in our head, or yes. heads, probably sound similar. Yes. Pretty Some right. of this stuff is hard to kind of quantify or analyse, um, because you're you're talking about sound, and sound is such an abstract thing. But it's it's more feel, I think, than anything else. I like the idea that you can have a, a basic amp channel, and just by varying the way you're hitting the strings, or Tweaking the volume knob on the guitar, you can coax lots of different sounds yes. out of one channel. And like some amps, or well, some styles of amps, seem to do that better than others.
0: Very cool. Now you know uh, when you first plugged in, right. you were doing something that I wanted to ask you about, and you do it on one or two of the songs on the record, and I forget which one. Where you really are making your custom Charvel here. You're playing. You could do it on any guitar. Sound a like a slide, almost. Like you're kind of playing slide. We use maybe using the bar and some literal fretting hand slides can you show me a little bit of you know what i'm talking uh, about i'm not sure let's let's find out <laughs> Did you do some also more aggressive ones with like maybe like bridge pickup? Like more like, those are beautiful by the way. I, dude, I I hear what you're doing. Now I have to ask you about them. First of all, like the very last thing you did, I, you, you bent the strings in exactly the way that the, sort of the interval and the tuning that a slide would get. Have you Did you actually study slide players sonically listening to get these bends?
2: Yeah, well I kind of grew up listening to certain slide players. And for me, originally it was people like George Harrison, who of course is less of the bluesy thing. He's more of a melodic style of slide playing. Um, so I've been dabbling with slides since I was like six or seven, but in secret, and right. um, I guess there are so many different reference points, but for me, it's always been standard tuning. Uh, I like the idea that you can put the slide on or take it off, but the map of the fingerboard remains the same, and you can still visualize what you're trying to do, and unfortunately that means a lot of the classic you know, dust-my-broom-isms mm-hmm. don't entirely work, because you need an open tuning to make everything resonate in that special way. So, I guess a big part of trying to approximate that in standard tuning is just uh, kind of trying to set your hand up so that when it's in its kind of default position, all the strings should ring together the way they would ring out if you're using a slide on one fret in open tuning. So, a lot of that stuff, you just adopt a chord shape that you know and love, and that's home. And then, if you want to mutilate the pitch in any way, you use the bar for that.
0: Yeah, well, it, whether you were playing quietly at the beginning or loud, it really, you got, you got some of those isms in there, which I really appreciate, like the downward bends, the little things that, I mean, a lot of us listen to slide, but you actually have this knack for taking these things we hear and putting them into your fingertips and, and doing them. Now, um, I remember in the current interview that I have with you that we did in Guitar Player Magazine, which is in the current issue, that has B.B. King, Dear B.B. King on the cover. Oh, I think I actually asked you about did you play slide or did you play fretless, which is another beast. Why take on fretless? I think most guitar players are terrified enough of a standard six string. Why, why, are you glutton for punishment? No, I think why take on fretless? Because
2: it exists. And I don't know, as someone who plays a stringed instrument, I like the idea that you can pick up a slightly different stringed instrument and it's not like learning from scratch. You get some of that excitement of like meeting an instrument you've never played before, but actually you're cheating because you know the basic layout you know where to find the notes, you know the basic playing technique, so you can focus solely on what's different. So yeah, I have a lot of fun if someone gives me a a bazooki or a mandolin or a banjo or a double bass or something like that, because it feels like exploring a whole new instrument, but not starting from square one. And fretless just seemed like the perfect example of that. It's like, I I know where all the notes are. I know how to hit a string. And what can I do to kind of exploit the fact that there aren't any frets anymore? And it just made sense to me Because I've I've always been a big fan Certainly when playing anything melodic Of like moving up and down the neck And like staying on one string for a bit longer Rather than staying in one scale box And changing strings more Because I think it
0: sounds more vocal Definitely Um, Do you do much chords on the fretless Or more mostly just like double stops or something Once uh, you add like three strings It starts to get a little trickier Yeah, I mean even basic stuff Like
2: an open A chord Suddenly becomes the most painful thing in the world Both to play and to listen to Because (laughs) your fingers literally have to sit on top of each other uh, so with chords, I find most of my time with a fretless guitar is figuring out which chords never to attempt in public. And to me, it's more of a vocal, single-line instrument. Uh, I'm not Bumblefoot. He's really turned this whole thing into a science. He can do all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. But for me, I just want it to sound like a certain kind of singer, mostly.
0: You get a nice vibrato that way. You can roll the fingers like a violinist or a cello player.
2: Yeah, I guess more like a cello player. Ch- the yeah. scale length is similar. Right. The violin, you can just rock your fingertip. And you can kind of go up a tone or
0: down a tone. It's crazily sensitive because yeah. the scale length is tiny. Yeah, hey, you can do hammer-ons on a mandolin that way. Just roll your finger over to yeah. the next fret. Now, you know, I have to tell you, this podcast has been really fun. It's a great way to interview people. You are actually one of the direct inspirations because in this last article, you know, we, it was several pages in the magazine. However there's just so many cuts I had to make like we didn't really get to talk about this beautiful Charvel which you just let me play when we were setting up here and that is a mean machine everything feels like it's in the right place I love the neck cut the heel the cut on the neck heel back there the action the curvature of the neck can you tell us about your guitar what are some of the custom things that you had Charvel do for you because I know you guys made this from the ground up
2: yeah And there are certain features which you will find on all sorts of different guitars. You might recognize the shape of the headstock or the fact that the six tuners are all on the same side. Six
0: tuners, revolutionary!
2: Yeah. Um, The basic body shape is not dissimilar to a style of guitar which perhaps begins with the letter S. And we've all seen many, many permutations of that over the years. Yeah, we won't say which one it is, but it rhymes with (laughs) schmatacaster. There you go. Uh, But yeah, what can I tell you about this? There are certain things that I I knew I needed to have on this guitar um because the, the basic vision was to have one guitar that can do all sorts of different stuff so if I get called to do a session somewhere and I don't know what kind of guitar player I'm I'll be needed to be when I get there is like, is this thing capable of faking every normal guitar tone um can it sound warm and jazzy can it sound like a T kind of guitar and like twangy. Um, smell Can it have a whammy bar that floats and moves in both directions but can it also have a fixed bridge? Um, which, which you do can. for drop D a lot, right? Yeah. And they have this monstrosity on the back kind of hiding amongst the trem springs and it's a, called a tremel And yes. you basically lock it and it clamps the bridge so it can't move anymore. So it's both kinds of bridge. Um, they've got two humbuckers and a single coil but it's wired in a way that gives you a lot of the obvious Guitar tones that you might need. Yes. Twenty-four frets, just because I, I guess I've been using 20 fret, twenty-four
0: fret guitars since I was sixteen. And you really like use that. those extra two frets. Just now, I'm just watching. I mean, you. are <laughs> yeah. Just as comfortable up there as you are. You're as comfortable in the mandolin frets as you are in the guitar frets.
2: No, it's a funny thing. If you give me like an old Strat with twenty-one frets, I don't find myself constantly reaching for fret twenty-four because I recognise what kind of instrument it is and it has to be venerated and like handled in yeah. a different way. But for the the one-size-fits-all guitar, I think 24 frets feels like the right amount. I will add that they're steel frets, which is no fun at all for the guitar repair person. No one wants to work with steel frets in the same way that no one wants to work with ebony fingerboards just because it's that little bit harder. Uh, These are materials that do not wish to be manipulated. Um, But once once they're in there and they're set up right, bending feels like a thing of joy for a lot longer than it would on any other kind of fret.
0: Really? Just skates more or...?
2: Yeah, it's smoother, it's more like glass, ah, um, yeah. and I guess because they stay, let me start again, because it takes longer for the fret to wear down, um, you have more of a kind of point on the top of the fret, so your intonation stays accurate for longer, and that's a good thing. Definitely. And I know some people say you can hear a difference, and like that the stainless steel kind of affects the tone,
0: and I can hear it a little bit acoustically, but... right. It's not a bad thing. It's just slightly different. And if I recall correctly, you know, you don't have any sort of locking nut at the top of your guitar neck, but it is a clamping bridge? Yeah. Tell tell us about that. Well,
2: my reasoning has always been if your nut is cut correctly and you don't have too many turns of string going around the post where the tuner is, and maybe you have a locking tuner there, but if the nut slots are the right size and the breaking angle of how the string bends as it moves over the nut, if you can keep that as slight as possible, um, then you should be able to kind of counteract any negative effects of fric- friction. And I like that more kind of Taoist approach, just let the string find its way back, rather than the kind of brutal, blunt, heavy-handed 80s approach of let's clamp this so it can't right. move at all. And that does but, change the
0: tone when you put a clamp on there.
2: Yeah. But it works there. And also, if you put a clamp on it, you can't bend behind the nut anymore. Like drop D requires extra technology. Yes. And I don't know. I, I used to cut the side of my, fin- my index finger, just kind of moving up there too fast up to where the nut is, and you have this little sharp thing. I've never enjoyed locking nuts. But I think at the nut end, you can counteract all the friction problems just by making sure everything's smooth and everything is aligned correctly. Yeah, But at the, nice the bridge
0: end... Oh, I was going to say, it's nice on the bridge too, because then you don't have these clumsy uh, fine tuners underneath your palm. Yeah, the problem with that that whole bridge thing is I've
2: always been fond of big bends. With regard to locking at the bridge, I've always enjoyed like bending strings maybe further than you should. I guess that's just how I am. If you show me a kind of guitar technique, I want to take it further and see how much fun I can have exploring the extremes of something, like how far can you bend them before they break. And uh, with this, with with a, I guess, a Fender style whammy bar you've got a 90 degree angle it's the opposite of what's going on at the nut where it's almost straight and that's just asking for problems with friction and like whenever you bend your B string up like two and a half tones it's going to come back and it's going to be flat and it's because the string has moved at the saddle end so I think if you clamp it at the bridge end and then let it just relax and express itself up at the nut end that's a good compromise and it's also a lot easier for well, certainly for me to pick like this. I I never enjoyed the, the traditional Floyd having these kind of fine tuners back there it's right, yeah. it's right where my picking hand wants to be sometimes. So yeah, this is ba- basically like the original Floyd before they invented the fine tuning edition and yes. it's Charvel's own version of that design because we, we tried an original Floyd just as an experiment and we discovered that the string spacing wasn't quite right for the kind of neck that we'd settled on and the curvature of the saddles didn't quite match the radius of the fingerboard that we would picked so in the end they said well hey we'll just build you a bridge that's like that but tailor-made for this particular guitar so that's
0: great where is that bridge manufactured uh in the us i think cool what is the radius of your neck uh it's compound let me think i think it's 12 to 16. sounds reasonable so, yeah, you know, we kind of traded stresses here because when I was coming down here, I was hitting the worst traffic coming to San Diego from uh, LA. Then I got settled, took a deep breath. And then you came in from a frantic sound check, and then you got a gig coming up. I mean, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And I know the listeners appreciate you coming to meet us here in between sound check and the show here in San Diego. Nice. How was sound check? Uh, Soundcheck was actually okay
2: Soundcheck was not the most stressful thing of the day We played in Mexicali last night So Uh this morning we had the drive from Mexicali And the border crossing And it was like 110 degrees out there And we were just festering in this vehicle Moving forward like one foot every 10 minutes The joys of touring Uh, So once we got that out of the way uh, The soundcheck was kind of the highlight
0: It's like cool, now we finally get to play music for 10 minutes well you know i've been over all over england so many times all these little towns and it's always so cool and the sun isn't quite as high in the sky i always always feel for you a little bit when you come to southern california and arizona and yeah. mexico just getting pounded well yeah i'm a
2: bleep. pasty anglo-saxon stroke celt I, i'm not designed for these temperatures um, well i've seen pasty yeah, i wouldn't say pasty but i know it's not what you're used uh, to <laughs> you should have seen me two months ago before i came <laughs> out and <laughs> started touring yeah um, it's all part of the fun yeah. of it
0: are you able to find good beers out here?
2: Yes, stage? I would like to congratulate the U.S. for learning how to make IPA. I've now realized that that's the correct <laughs> beer to seek out in
0: this country. There's yeah. some amazing IPAs now, and it's getting better every year. Right, cheers to that, brother! So uh, let's play something. Um, what what are some of your more fun songs to play? I guess they're all fun. What do you like playing from the new album on stage every night? Uh, it's it's all fun, really, because uh, it's different every night. Trace Caballeros um, is the record. Let's uh, let's hear one of one of your licks. Uh, which um, one did you write? Uh, you wrote. A, okay, uh, I wrote um,
2: the Kentucky Meat Shower, which is yes. my comedy country tune.
0: <laughs> the Kentucky Meat uh, Shower.
2: I'll play you a bit of Kentucky Meat Shower because it's it's fun. I get to
0: deploy my No device. So um, Are you about to drop down to D or something? Or, that's awesome, folks. He did that on a floating bridge. If you, <laughs> On this strap that I'm holding, that would take five minutes, because it's floating. Mm. Does the Tremel No ever kind of get, you ever feel it while you're using it when it's not
2: locked? A little bit. If you're doing your crazy Zach Wild vibrato, you can hear a tiny clunk. Right. I'll
0: put the microphone next to it. This is me going. Oh yeah, you hear a little bit of a, a little bit of clunking there, but it's okay. Right. Um... And when it's not engaged, you don't feel it at all. No. Right. That's a thing of beauty. All right. Kentucky meat storm. Shower. Meat shower. <laughs> Kentucky it's, meat shower. It's a real thing. Yeah, you were telling Gentle me Gentle
2: listeners, Google this. It's really funny. Um, What's your opinion on what it was? Like birds? I like the bird theory. Bird theory. Yeah. yeah. You guys got to Google it. I'm sure there's Kentucky. an alien theory somewhere out there, but I like birds. It's believable.
0: So it's either bird meat or Martian meat. We're not sure. <laughs> but it like did that. happen.
2: Oh, yes. All right. And my song about it, I guess this for me was like chapter two of something I started 20-something years ago when I wrote that song, Rhode Island Shred. And at the time I thought this is a funny kind of country-flavoured song. And then having had to play it so many times at clinics, it kind of bothered me more and more. It's like, hang on, this isn't like full-on country playing. This sounds like a rock guy with a pick pretending to play certain bluegrass kind of notes. I can do better. I can make this funnier. So it started out as a similar kind of approach to that. Right. And uh, I don't know, let's see if I can play you some of it. Bring the meat.
0: I think if I remember correctly you had a nice Esquire custom something from the custom shop at Fender and a Strat and even though it sounds like a Telecaster or an Esquire you actually used the Fender Strat yeah you actually use the Strat
2: yeah everyone thinks it's a Tele even I kind of think it's a Tele when I listen back to it but yeah it was a modern like a US deluxe Strat with the noiseless pickups so there's nothing particularly vintage or old-school about that guitar I just stuck 11s on it and then gave myself blisters just trying to do all this hybrid picking stuff as violently as possible Just trying to get as much twang out of the guitar as I could And then I tried again on the telly. It didn't sound as big. It didn't sit in the mix as well So you go with
0: what works you go with what sounds right not what looks right It's true people think Jimmy Page did all that stuff on a Les Paul, but a lot of it was a Telecaster Yeah (laughs) now um, speaking of the record Tres Caballeros, um, which you guys are about to wrap up your big summer tour of. You guys recorded that in a a great room. Where did you guys record that? That was Sunset Sound in Hollywood, which
2: is kind of a mystical place for anyone who grew up listening to a certain kind of album. And I think parts of Led Zeppelin IV happened there. Uh, Most of the early Van Halen stuff, anything prior to 1984, in fact, was recorded there. When we went in there just to check the studio out, Part of the guided tour is you get to go into the Van Halen echo chamber. And it's like this is where all of the all of the ambience here on Fair Warning was recorded. And that's what, just what this monolith like? full of speakers in a weird shaped room. Ah. So they'll just play the guitar track or whatever, feed it into a big power amp and into these speakers, and then just record the sound of the whole room.
0: How long is that room? Is it long and narrow? Um,
2: it's smaller than this room. It's narrower than this room. I wouldn't be able to tell you in feet and
0: inches. I always picture those things being like a long little bowling lane or something that you could barely stand up in or something. Um, but <laughs> we got the whole band in there. That's cool. Did you track in which? There's two rooms there, right? I guess. Yeah. So, um, I guess Van Halen might have worked in both of those rooms, or I think they did. Yeah, because yeah, uh, they also showed us the room where he
2: played Eruption, and that was in the other studio. Uh-huh. So we were in the one that wasn't that one.
0: Right. Um, and it's cool. I mean, yeah, you walk in. There's so many other great acts worked there i think michael jackson all kinds of not just rock bands so did did you feel like it brought something to the sessions or was oh, totally, it totally yeah
2: oh completely you feel a certain mojo when you when you're recording in a room like that and even if it's all completely psychological even if mojo is not a real thing that doesn't matter if you feel it it doesn't matter whether it exists or not it's still going to affect the way you you
0: record how yeah. many songs a day does the do the aristocrats get through on a typical session
2: i think we had maybe 10 or 11 days in that studio to record nine songs so we probably had all the the basic tracks kind of down in about three days something like that three four days and then we were messing around with overdubs or trying to find better sounds see if we could replace certain parts and just make it sound more expensive (laughs) and we definitely
0: expensive or expansive
2: both. There you go. Yeah, I said expensive, but...
0: uh, It's a British accent. We're illiterate heathens over here on this side of the pond sometimes need clarification. Thank you for reading my thought bubble there. (laughs) (laughs) I figured. So uh, maybe we could hear another lick from the record. Or I know we don't have time to play the whole songs, but you know, so much cool stuff. I just listened to it twice on the way down. It's interesting because from the first times you hear it it sounds so complicated, then you start hearing it and it grows on you in a way that you really lapse into the groove you really get comfortable hearing the grooves like the different time signatures and all that stuff and well the, we really wanted
2: some music to be yeah. on the record we wanted to stay as far away as possible from this kind of grandstanding hey check us out we're like mighty musos tremble at our chops kind of thing because that's not fun and the reality of this band is we really have a lot of fun when we play together so that's something we want to
0: share with the listener yeah, that's it's kind like of the, how you guys formed right at a nam show kind of had yeah. a impromptu jam scheduled and who was the original guitar player that was going to be there greg howard greg something? Howe, yeah and he couldn't make it
2: something came up in his calendar at the last minute right and then just some people on facebook were sending brian messages saying you have to check out this skinny english guy and maybe he could help and i'm happy to report that he believed them and he e- emailed me and and we did that one gig, and it just felt right.
0: And you are such a mellow, humble cat. And, of course, I'm not saying Brian and Marco, your bandmates, aren't humble, but they're definitely more outgoing and type A. What's it like being on the road with these guys? It's good. It's balanced. Balance them out? <laughs> and vice versa. What's the dynamic like when you're... A, no, I don't it's, know.
2: it's really good. We enjoy hanging. You know, We have this ridiculous kind of language of in-jokes and stupidity, and we keep ourselves sane somehow on the road. It's not like the, the old Emerson, Lake & Palmer myth. I, I don't know if this really happened, but this idea that each member of the band had to have their own dressing room and their own tour bus and all this because they couldn't stand each other. This band's kind of the opposite of that. It's, it's a good hang, and that kind of hopefully comes out during the gigs and the way we play with each other.
0: It definitely does, Then the new record is really... Three dimensional sounding, and there's all these lyrical parts in it. I love it. All the I do like the overdubs that you've added and stuff. What was what was your approach to the overdubs? Just well, there's a I guess a two step process. Um, we were
2: very conscious that we didn't want to end up with an album that wouldn't sound f- finished when we played it live, because we are such a, a live band and like touring is such a big component of what we do. So we thought we do want to experiment with overdubs, we do want to see how lavish we can make this sound, but how can we do that and check that the raw trio version is still going to sound complete when we take it out on the road? So we did something that we maybe should have done two albums ago, you live and learn. Uh, we hired out Alvis, a right. really pristine hi-fi sounding little fusion club in San Pedro, and we just had a residency there for a week so for the first three days we just rehearsed this material and tried to find out the optimum tempos and tweaked some arrangements tried some different instruments and all of that stuff and then did four gigs so it was a small captive secret audience just watching this material take shape so we we'd figured out what the live arrangement would be and then we went into the the studio knowing like whatever we add to this whatever extra layers end up on this album when we peel them back peel them all away what we're going to be left with is something that will still work on a stage.
0: Now is uh, Smuggler's Corridor one of those ones where there's two guitar tracks, you're soloing Do I remember like a surfy guitar underneath?
2: Yes, there's, there's an extra kind of cowboy kind of guitar that came into Brian's mind while we were in the studio. So I'd learned the demo, which I think just had one guitar part, and then it suddenly came to Brian. Oh, I need this twangy line descending. I can make it sound even more Robert Rodriguez.
0: Well, uh, maybe we could try a little bit of that jam on the the solo jam. I think I might remember the chord progression. Love to hear you stretch out on that. Let's see what happens. I think I need my whammy bar back there, don't I? I love it. You do a lot of these minor second stuff. Do you know what I'm talking about? You've been throwing those in today a little bit. Actually, what I was talking about was I think two strings at once to get the dissonance kind of. Sometimes you just throw them in little bits right in the middle of lines or something. No fair, you've got more frets. It's true. <laughs> Being somebody who loves to uh, play kind of slap funk guitar, I, I love the kind of stuff you're doing with slap techniques in here in 2015. Really cool stuff. Maybe we could uh, try a little bit of, what do you call it? Do you call it slap guitar, spank guitar, smack guitar? I don't know. I'm
2: honestly trying to stay away from all that because
0: I, <laughs> I never tried to portray
2: myself as a slap guitar expert. All I ever really did was write a song 20-something years ago called Wonderful Slippery Thing that had a slap lick in it.
0: But, but, I mean, it's one of the many techniques that you just are very adept at. <laughs> is there any technique mm-hmm. on the guitar that you feel you want to explore more than you have yet? Well, all of them. All of them? Yeah. All equally? What about Charlie Parker? Or I'm just throwing out random stuff here. Is there any <laughs> anything you haven't well, done? I could pick anything like that
2: and figure out a way to get a lot better at it than I am. Because it, these things never end. You never get there. The, the important thing for me is that what fascinates me today. Um, What kind of things am I listening to? What does the music in my head sound like today? That's the kind of thing that I should be focusing on. Right. Mostly i let these things just happen organically now, rather than saying I'm gonna spend two hours a day focusing on this new technique or this new style of music. I really just think in terms of what do I want my guitar to sound like? What do I want to come out of my amp? What do I want other people to hear when I'm playing? That kind of thing. And I just try to do what I hear in my head, and if it doesn't work, I'll kind of rewind Calm down, slow down, analyze why what came out of the amp didn't match up with what I hoped would happen.
0: And now you've also been doing, in addition to the aristocrats, you know, Marco and Brian, they go off and they tour with Joe Satriani. But you've certainly been busy yourself, like Stephen Wilson. You've done quite a bit with him. Um, I would love to hear your impressions of working with him. He's He's a kind of a genius dude. Yeah,
2: no, he's really, really good at what he does. And he's a big picture kind of guy. He's not someone who spent years practicing sweep arpeggios or seeing how big his vocal range could become or anything like that He's kind of good enough on a billion different instruments and his gift is just like seeing the whole Picture from a distance It's more of the producer writer kind of thing rather than a virtuosic instrumentalist So I guess he's in the place now where he's capable of making Demos that other people would just release his demos sound really good you know he's great at that whole kind of mixing and production thing. So I guess he has some fun when he's taking his music out on the road, and he gets to choose people who are actually kind of recognised for being specialists in as, in their chosen field, like people who have spent their whole life maybe focusing more on one instrument. So all of the groundwork with Stephen's music is done before anyone gets to hear the demos. You know he has a pretty clear idea what the song should sound like, and he'll guide you as best he can. It's like I've, I've brought you here today because I'm trying to make the guitar do this kind of thing, and he has a weird, poetic, unschooled way of describing the sounds that he's going for. Yeah, so, yeah. like, part of being able to work well with him is being able to understand what he's trying to describe. You know, he doesn't know or need to know anything about music theory. You know, he's just an ear guy. He knows whether something sounds right or not. True. Yeah, I think I understand the things that he's that he tries to convey when he's telling me what he's going for we have a pretty good line of communication there
0: and that brings me to another uh, amazing musical mind you're working with Hans Zimmer tell us for anyone who might not know who he is even though they've surely heard his music more than they know who he is and what you did with him recently um okay you've definitely heard Hans Zimmer he did the soundtracks for
2: let me think uh Rain Man was him, Gladiator was him, uh, The Dark Knight was him.
0: Countless blockbusters. Yeah,
2: probably half of the blockbusters are in some way connected with Hans' music. My understanding is the way he got into this whole Hollywood thing was like years and years ago. He was a a bass player in a punk band or something like that, but he, he got very good at Cubase when Cubase was a young art form. And he became a guy who could kind of imagine a demo for a soundtrack for a film and actually program it and then be able to present a finished demo of like this is roughly what my music will sound like when you pay the orchestra to play it at the time when other people were maybe just writing the scores and handing in pieces of paper so we would maybe think of Hans as this kind of orchestral guy but actually the whole kind of command of the electronic side of things is a big part of how he's able to operate and like capture his ideas he was a very early adopter of all this sort of sequencing technology and I think to this day the Cubase guys will still go to Hans and like, show him new firmware up sorry software updates and things like that and say is this gonna work do you have any suggestions and they listen
0: to him because he's whatever wow. he's always gonna find a use for all of these features score one for Cubase hmm. now you did a big concert with him what was that like where was it that was Hammersmith Odeon in London which is like the famous
2: rock and roll theatre Yes. in the southeast of england it's if you're rock and roll you play there if you're if you want more of a pompous angle maybe you would go for the albert hall just to add a little more dignity the, the hammersmith is a little more kind of sweaty right and uh i think that was a deliberate decision um because hans's vision was to do a retrospective of all these great soundtracks he's done over the years but with the world's biggest band and i think there were like 77 people on stage something like that so there were people from the orchestral background and we had a dedicated drum line. We had a guy who, whose sole job was like freaky sound design stuff and he had these old modular synths. And basically people from every musical discipline all just gathered together on this stage uh, trying to bring something new to the music. And we discovered that actually Hans wasn't a control freak at all. His thing was If there's one thing I'm good at, it's casting. That's what he said to me when I was kind of worrying about this. Because he he offered me this gig, and I said, are you sure? Yeah, first
0: of all, how did he find you or choose Um, you? I mean,
2: Apparently he stays up very late at night just trawling YouTube for interesting musicians. And he found some clip somewhere where I was playing fretless guitar, and that must have tickled his fancy in some way. So he sent me a Facebook message and i read it and obviously refused to believe that it was really hans simmer hilarious and that might sound paranoid but i've had a lot of messages from people who aren't who they claim to be
0: did it send did you send it to your artist page
2: yeah how long did it but take but for i think the reply to... he got was come on we both know you're some 14 year old kid trying to get guitar lessons or something please don't waste our time <laughs> and he replies no it really is me the dodgy german composer and i've watched this video and I'm but, doing these gigs and I'd like you to be involved That's still not enough proof How did he prove that it was him? When did you know it was really um, him? I think he sent his phone number oh, In the next go. message it's like, okay, well, this
0: 310 Beverly Hills Okay we're getting yeah.
2: closer <laughs> But no it was, it was a really Exciting thing to do And as I said his take is He'll spend a long time kind of cherry picking musicians Because he sees something In everyone's musical identity For which he could find a home in his music so for him, I think a lot of the hard work of putting the band together is just choosing the right ingredients. And then he just lets everyone do their own thing. I remember I would always say to him, Look, what do you want the guitar to do here? And he would just reply, I trust you. It's flattering and terrifying at the same time As someone with a musical brain that size just saying, I trust you, do whatever you want and I'll, I'll let you know if I don't like it.
0: Now, are you? do you have any more plans or... Anything you can talk about with uh, Mr. Um, Zimmer? Are you going to meet him soon in Hollywood? I'm going
2: to meet him the day after our last gig. I'm going to go great. pop into his
0: studio facility. That's great. And, uh, mm. It'll be good, good to good. catch up. Yeah. So, Well, it's cool now. So with Stephen Wilson and Hans Zimmer, the, the, these guys are really big picture, complicated kind of stuff. Is that influencing you in terms of where you might want to go with your music in the future?
2: Probably the Hans stuff more so. Uh, Stephen does what he does. And at the end of a Stephen tour, I don't need to hear another Mellotron sound for a few weeks. Right. You know, with all due respect to the Mellotron, but it's coming from a fairly specific place and it's informed by a lot of the, that whole 70s prog movement coupled with, I guess, a later poppy sensibility, a little bit of electronic stuff. But when I did the hands kick, there were all these influences that I just didn't recognize at all because his music is coming from everywhere at once, particularly when you get... Um, The music from Sherlock and then you get the music from Inception or something like that and they're completely different Storylines a completely different world of music. I just got to do so many different things and it's like hang on You can do anything in music, you know all of these possibilities can coexist I just got to play like the Batman stuff on an eight string guitar through all the distortion in the world and then I got to play the Pirates of the Caribbean theme on a banjo and I just enjoyed the, how
0: random that spectrum was. How might this show up in your music to, in the future?
2: Oddly enough, you, I'm sure no one will be able to hear it, but it kind of did show up when I was writing some of the stuff for this new Aristocrats album. If you listen to something like Jack's Back...
0: Oh, no, I think I, I know definitely a,
2: hear it. It's a trio thing, but you can imagine what it would sound like if it was a cheeky orchestral arrangement.
0: Could you play a little bit of... Jack's back Uh,
2: I can try it might not sound awesome with just one of me but let's see show us a couple of different parts there's this kind of fake mandolin thing that I was trying to do and I think on the record I kind of detuned one of the strings so I could do it with double stops and live it's more painful because I have to use like the devil horn fingers and I'm like maybe doing the same note on oh, two different strings you trying to in. bend one of them slightly out and then tremolo picking that double stop and it destroys picks show us what you do live
0: there I'm curious what you just you've
2: got this kind of melody but
0: Yeah. If
1: you do it this way again.
0: You're hitting two you're holding two strings in unison the third string and the second string
1: unison
0: oh. folks he's not limited to just the third and second string. Yeah, that's cool now um you you use that overdub to uh really build the intensity i think it keeps growing and the and then the mandolin part as you describe it keeps rising
2: hopefully yeah and then i guess there's the comedy octave part
0: oh so and then you're saying there's the comedy octave part how's that go <laughs>
1: sounds
0: very pizzicato Can how how do you do that like if you could do that in slow motion three? That's basically
2: playing the same note in three different octaves. There's the A string version the G string version and the top E string version So that's your Your basic template whatever note you play you'd use that shape
0: and is it just three notes that you're plucking? Um,
2: so you would I'm doing it with one hand now and I'll do it with my p- picking hand in a minute. The basic jacks back thing is lowest one, middle one, highest one and then middle one again. Uh-huh, so it's da ga da 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 ga da da. But then you do it with a pizzicato. Cigar- with the, sorry, the hybrid picking thing and you can really make the, the strings pop out a bit more. So yeah, it'd be pick middle ring and then pick again. Uh-huh. Aha. That so that works a lot more naturally i think than going pick middle ring back to the middle i think it's better to make the extra movement so that you can land on a picked version
1: that's
0: great that's great so in the cover story that we did you know we covered basically your whole development and you know a kid onward like it's i still did i hallucinate it or did you tell me you were once working at mcdonald's flipping hamburgers that's not even a fancy burger place no how i wish
2: that was a hallucination
0: it really did happen
2: i did that for 18 months i think after i left university you left oxford university of yeah i left oxford university because it was kind of a distraction whilst i was there i kind of didn't know what i should be doing with my life because i was capable of Writing in whole paragraphs and stuff like that, but also capable of playing music, and I kind of didn't know which one deserved the bulk of my energy until one day I realised. Hang on, I'm reading fewer books than I was reading before I came to this university, whereas I am. Um, I did five funk gigs this week. You know what is this telling me? This my my life is trying to reveal itself to me here. All I have to do is pay attention to the obvious signs. So I thought I, ha- I should leave this place because it's a great opportunity, but. I don't know what I would do with an English degree. I don't want to be an English teacher. I want to make obnoxious
0: noises. So what were those eighteen months like? What was your typical day like or typical week like when you're working at McDonalds? Um horrible. When you were behind the grill? Yeah. But the payoff was at night you got to play? Um
2: honestly no. After twelve hours of McJob you come home stinking like a chip pan and you just want a beer. Um so the, 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 only, the real benefit of having worked there is it kind of shows you that you should never complain about anything that happens when you're playing music for a living and this will sound cheesy but I still have my McDonald's badge and it has the five stars on it and I, I keep it on one of my guitar straps so every time I've had a long day or a difficult flight or a bad sound check or something I can look at the badge and it, it tells me STFU you know, life could be worse remember when you had that job and it's, it helps you to be grounded I guess. I would recommend everyone do a short spell in a job like that. Maybe not 18
0: months. That was unnecessary. Yeah, I thought that you were doing that so that you would have more time to practice or read books. but No, yeah. not, mostly it was just to pay back debts
2: and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, going to university is not a cheap operation.
0: Well, you've definitely paid your dues, and it's good to see you getting some rewards for it. Like it's ho- nice to get away with it. You, know? uh, you gave me your hotel list for where I might be able to meet up with you here on the road and they're not too shabby this is a nice spot it's got sweets going on <laughs> yeah well this is i'm glad to see it paying <laughs> yeah. off
2: for you i know it's not you know this is the fun of like having your own band like this like the, the three of us we are the boss so when a tour happens we get to decide what kind of environment we want and the question is not just how much money can we make you know it's all bundle into a scummy little hotel room and make each other miserable We've tried to discover what kind of daily routine is going to preserve our sanity for the longest. And yeah, we've kind of found a formula that seems to work for everyone in the band. And It's not an extravagance if it means you can tour for a month longer
0: without <laughs> stabbing each other, you know? Well, we should wrap up here because I know you've got some work to do tonight. I just got to tell you, I know that everyone listening thanks you so much for uh, coming down here, you know, coming back from the venue to do this. And now no, you're going to go back over there and rock the house. That's the plan. We'll Travis Larson Band opening. Those yeah. guys are cool. Maybe we'll take it out on a little funk or something. Okay. Start a well, funk on jam. The, on the jam of your choice. How about you? I want to hear you. What, what, what's the first thing that comes out of your mind right now So I'd like um, to hear? I don't know. I want to save the first thing that
2: comes out of my mind <laughs> for when, <laughs> when we have a few hundred people watching us later. All right. Uh, I'll happily respond to whatever... All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks for... Much appreciated. ...for the invitation.
0: There are those comedy octaves Guthrie was talking about that he likes to do. There they are in their natural setting. And in case you missed it, or were not quite clear on it, you're gonna fret, for example, the fifth string at the ninth fret. We're doing this in F sharp with your first finger. Then you're gonna fret the third string, the 11th fret. Then you're gonna fret the first string at the 14th fret with your fourth finger. and Hold those three notes down. Pick the lowest note. Pluck the middle note with your middle finger. Pluck the high note with your ring finger. And finally, pluck the middle note again this time, but with your pick. So pick the middle note to close it off. Then repeat. Man, we sure got to thank Guthrie for this. He fit us into his crazy schedule. Hope you found that inspiring. And wow, now we're looking back at 10 episodes of No Guitar Is Safe with plenty more to come. Hope you've been enjoying this. Thanks to Guitar Player Magazine and thanks to Zoom for the H6 Handy Recorder. We use that thing every time. That's how we record this. As mentioned last week, without the H6, the show would sound like this, but luckily we have the H6. And I really, going back, want to thank the other nine guests as well. They all made sacrifices of one kind or another to be on this show, including going all the way back to Joe Satriani and Brad Gillis, guests number one and two respectively. They had no idea what the show was or how it would turn out, but they just said yes. They said, sure, book me. I'll be there. So thanks to them for going in blind, for being the guinea pigs. Hope you're enjoying things, and in the words of Joe Shatriani. keep it alive until you're 95.